Why are some places rich while others are poor? Why are some countries violent while others are peaceful? Is there anyone out there who hasn't wondered about this? Many have taken a crack at answering these questions through grandiose statements about geography or psychology or race even. Yet the fact that there is no generally accepted answer tells you that it's probably not all that simple. In the last episode, we saw that the wealth of Saudi Arabia and some of its neighbors cannot be explained simply by pointing to the fossil fuels under its soil. Venezuela also has lots of oil, and that country is anything but prosperous. And after all, Arabian oil had been in the ground for millennia, not doing the Arabians any good. It largely comes down to history in all its complexity. Politics, economics, technology, perhaps most of all, coincidence. Today's story offers another illustration of this. Take a look at Arabia today. While statelets like Qatar and Dubai are among the richest and safest places on earth, Yemen is one of the worst off. Extremely violent and constantly on the brink of starvation. Needless to say that this has nothing to do with the nature of the inhabitants. Only less than a century ago, Abu Dhabi was a fishing village, while Aden in Yemen was by far the richest city in Arabia. How did this change of fortune come about? It's a complex story, and local actors are not even the main characters in it. The outcome, I think, was mainly determined by the interplay of several global developments. The twilight of colonialism, the subsequent will of Arabs to unite, the fight for supremacy among their leaders, the Cold War, and the discovery of oil. So we're going to have to take a look at the larger picture first. Let's get going. Until about the first half of the 20th century, European powers had been carving up the rest of the world like a cake. Arabia was one of the few places that were largely left alone, for the simple reason that no one suspected that they would find anything of value there anyway. And they could be forgiven for thinking that. I mean, just look at it. Nothing but rocks and sand, hot enough to bake an egg on it. What were they supposed to do there? Put up a solar farm? There was just one reason why the British in particular bothered to pay attention to Arabia at all, and that was that they sought to protect the route to their Indian colony. They needed to protect their ships from attacks, and they did this mainly by striking deals with the sheikhs who controlled the coastline. There was just one exception to this light-handed approach, the city of Aden in the south of Yemen, which had an exquisite natural harbor. The British captured it for themselves, then turned it into one of the busiest ports in the entire world. This also meant that once the Indians gained their independence, the old rationale for the British presence in Arabia faded overnight. But wait a second, if that's the case, then why would this be one of the last pieces of the British Empire that would remain intact? Fair question. The short answer is that Arabia gained a new sort of importance. You guessed it, fossil fuels, of course. Oil became the lifeblood of modern economies. And while the Soviet Union had plenty of energy resources of its own, the West came to depend on imports from the Third World. The communists in Moscow were well aware of this. And hence, the battle for fossil fuels was bound to become a crucial part of the Cold War, though often an overlooked one. It's all well and good, 
to explain the final victory of the capitalist bloc in terms of its supreme ideology. Free markets offer better incentives to be productive and innovative, all that. Now, I'm not saying that that wasn't important, or even the main reason. But the West might have found it hard to get its economic machine running without fuel, which for a large part had to come from the Middle East. With the stakes so high, I think it's hardly surprising that the Cold War in Arabia would get hot as hell. This explains why the British were in no hurry to leave the Gulf. Still, they understood that at some point they'd had to get out of there anyway. They wanted to hand control to local allies of theirs who would look after their remaining interests. As we'll see, they succeeded in Oman and the Emirates, but not in Aden, their stronghold on the South Yemeni coast. There, they were chased out with a tail between their legs, so to speak, and the insurgents that took over afterwards were not your usual run-of-the-mill rebels. They were communists. This changing of the guard was typical of the times. While colonial empires were crumbling, two rising powers tried to step in, capitalist America and the communist USSR, who would gain prominence, dependent on their ability to capture the hearts and minds of the formerly colonized peoples. In this race, the capitalists were at a disadvantage, for in the Third World, their ideology was closely associated with colonialism. The large majority didn't have fond memories of recent encounters with capitalists. Indeed, the former colonizers were part of the capitalist bloc. America, however, was mostly innocent of this. Well, at least in its own mind. The USA had once been a colony itself. True, it had owned colonies in places like Cuba and the Philippines, but even these were mostly seen as liberations, at least on the home front. In most of the Third World, this hadn't much tainted America's image. So it could still promote itself as a champion of self-determination. This meant that the Americans would have to distance themselves from their European allies, however, which led to friction inside the Western camp. And there was another problem with this marketing. America and some of its most important allies had close ties with the state of Israel, a Jewish state in the middle of Arab lands. This was seen as a colonial creation of its own, and not entirely without reason. Western support for Israel was presented as a way of making amends for the Holocaust, but that failed to impress the Arabs, who reasonably pointed out that there was no reason why they should suffer for other people's sins. The imposition of a Jewish state was just one way in which the Europeans meddled in Arab affairs. The states of the modern Middle East sprang into being when the Ottoman Empire was dissected at the end of the First World War, and it had been the British and the French who had drawn the new borders. The objective had been to divide the Arabs and rule their lands as colonies in all but name. Consequently, all of a sudden, the Arabs were told, Henceforth, you must consider yourself a Syrian. You, sir, are an Iraqi, and you are a Kuwaiti. Every nationality is artificial, but when they are so recent and so obviously imposed from outside, it's not hard to imagine that many people didn't want to accept them. There was a profound longing among Arabs to do away with these borders and reunite. The biggest obstacle would be that the leaders of these new countries would then lose the position that they had just acquired. So, although they were smart enough not to say it out loud, most of them had no interest in such a risky merger. 
the exceptions were those who felt confident that they wouldn't become or that they would become the leaders of such an Arab superstate. Of course, this would have to be a person with lots of charisma, an international appeal, and a strong nation behind him. Enter Gamal Abdel Nasser. You may have heard of this man. A military officer, he came to power after the army overthrew the king of Egypt. He obtained a devout following throughout the entire Arab world. This was partly due to the fact that he was a very gifted speaker. I could learn a thing or two from him. Although this podcast is not exactly in the same business. We want to spread understanding over here, while Nasser was commonly compared to a certain German dictator. His enemies had of course an interest in portraying him as the second coming of Hitler, so you should take that with a huge grain of salt. In fact, you can see and hear his speeches online if you want, so by all means, check it out and judge for yourself. Although the comparison is far-fetched, I can't help but notice that there were at least some similarities, and I'm not talking about a spectacular moustache. Just like in the Germany of the interwar years, Arab economies were in tatters, and the mood was resentful. Nasser played this anger like an instrument, harnessing it for his own ambitions. He gave a voice to the grievances of the Arab peoples, or, as he saw it, this one Arab nation. The anger was then directed at Israel, Arab rivals, and above all, the remaining imperialist strongholds in the Arab world. Case in point, the Suez Canal in Egypt. Give or take 200 kilometers long, this is the only way for, pa- for ships to pass directly between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, or between Europe and Asia. You can avoid it, sure, just go all the way around Africa. See you in a few months. Good luck staying competitive that way, Mr. Trader. And when you have to get troops from A to B, oftentimes this lost time means the difference between victory and defeat. Just ask the Russians. When the Japanese attacked their eastern flank in 1904, it took their Baltic fleet months to arrive on the scene. In war, you rarely have that sort of time. So ever since the Suez Canal was finished in 1869, it's been paramount to both world trade and global politics. Whoever controlled it had one hell of an advantage. But playing that card was dangerous, not totally unlike the oil weapon that we discussed in the previous episode. After all, the strategic interests of all major players were at stake here, and they could easily find reasons to intervene. The crisis that would unfold over this crucial waterway, known as the Suez Crisis, looks in many ways like a preview of the oil crisis, and in a way it really was one too. For the most important commodity that flowed through the canal at this time was petrol for the European market, and the Egyptian government was determined to become its goalkeeper. Its gatekeeper, sorry. Even before Nasser took power in Egypt, tensions were already running high. The population was furious at the British, not only for their support for Israel, but even more so because they showed no inclination of leaving Egyptian soil. The locals linked their economic troubles to this fact. The Suez Canal might provide the income that they needed to industrialize. Under pressure from the population, the government of Egypt, then still a kingdom, became more aggressive too. It wanted to show the British the door, but they refused to walk out. There were lots of British troops in place to protect the canal. The failure to dislodge them became an excuse to overthrow the monarchy, which would bring Nasser to power. At first, 
Britain and the new government in Cairo tried to uh, lower tensions, pressured by the USA. Washington opposed any further imperialist intervention from Britain. Instead, it wanted a strong and stable Egypt, which would be able and willing to keep communism at bay. This strengthened Nasser's hand. Britain agreed to pull back its troops in return for some guarantees. But once that happened, the situation changed drastically. Nasser had no intention of becoming a lapdog for the Americans, though. He didn't have the temperament for that. Instead, he intended to play the great powers off against each other. He demanded that the Americans make him the leader of the Arab world and supply him with lots of their modern weapons. But he refused to guarantee that he would not use these against Israel. He must have reckoned that mending fences with the Israelis would gravely damage his standing in the Arab world. But the effect was that the Americans concluded that he was unreasonable and untrustworthy, so they started courting his Iraqi rival instead. They underestimated his reaction, however. He too could play at that game, and he'd show them. If the West would not give him the military gear that he wanted, he would turn to the communist bloc, who were all too willing to sell. The Americans and the British wanted to teach Nasser a lesson, and they withheld further aid for the building of the Aswan Dam on the Nile River. This project was key to the economic development that Egypt craved so much. Again, the mercurial Nasser reacted in a way they didn't expect. He nationalized the canal, which he could easily do now that British forces had left. To add insult to injury, he declared that he would use the expected profits to finance the building of the Aswan Dam himself. This rash move provoked an equally brutal reaction on the part of the British, the French and the Israelis. They would start a joint offensive to wrest control of the canal from Egypt. In a military sense, their operation was a great success, but they underestimated the international reaction. Public opinion in many places was now strongly opposed to this neo-colonial aggression, and the USSR publicly threatened to intervene on behalf of Egypt. This raised the specter of World War III, and the Americans wanted to avoid that at all costs. They mobilized the General Assembly of the United Nations to force the invaders out, and the Saudis applied an oil embargo, this time with American support. Quite an ironic precedent, you might say. Britain, France and Israel backed down, humiliated in the eyes of the world, in no small measure by their big friend America. This of course led to lots of friction in the Western alliance. It's at this point, apparently, that France decided it needed to have nuclear weapons itself, and it even contemplated leaving NATO. Imagine what consequences that would have had. It wasn't the only problematic outcome for the Americans. The Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, learned that this nuclear bluff had worked perfectly. It's probably no coincidence that just a few years later, he would find himself in a Mexican standoff with Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Here is yet another example of how occurrences in the so-called periphery can decide the fate of the entire world, in this case bringing it close to a nuclear apocalypse. So the Americans would come to regret their actions in the Suez Crisis. Also, because it didn't yield the expected results in the Arab world. They had feared that, had they stood by their usual allies, the communists could henceforth portray them as a new imperialist power. But the Soviets would stand to profit from this episode anyway. The humiliated aggressors had been capitalist countries and allies of the USA. 
Khrushchev, on the other hand, was now seen as having protected the Arab cause forcefully, and the Egyptian leader made it clear how much he appreciated this. He would grow closer to the Soviet bloc in the coming years, and his policy became more socialist too. No longer did the Russians assume that the Middle East was out of bounds for them, and they would soon get a real foothold there. Like Khrushchev, Nasser had learned from the Suez Crisis that brinkmanship paid off. He was now seen as a hero throughout the Arab world. Worse, he knew that, and he didn't want to let the momentum pass him by. He called forcefully for erasing the colonial borders of the Middle East and uniting the Arab people. The weak leaders of Syria at the time knew that their people demanded that they'd answer his call. So Syria merged with Egypt, giving rise to a new nation called the United Arab Republic. It soon became clear, though, that it was just a cover for Egyptian domination. It was no mere accident that Cairo would become the great promoter of Arabian unific of Arab unification. For if an Arab superstate would arise, then Egypt, given its huge population and other assets, would be its natural leader. National interest was disguised as revolutionary zeal. A bit like with the French Revolution, spreading liberté as well as French domination across Europe, or like Imperial Japan, which talked about creating a pan-Asian co-prosperity sphere. In this case, too, the Syrians soon had enough, and they seceded again. Unlike Imperial Japan or Revolutionary France, Nasser let his new subjects go without a fight. He wasn't willing to delegitimize his whole project, which after all was supposed to be about liberating Arab lands, not conquering them. It's a good reminder that such things are not predetermined. But this aborted union proved almost just as embarrassing. Nasser felt he had to catch an easier prey, and quickly. This sets the stage for our main topic, the Cold War in the Arabian Peninsula. Phew, finally, right? Sorry about the long introduction, but it would be impossible to follow the story you're about to hear without an understanding of the larger context and this project of Nasser's in particular. For you might say that this was perhaps the prime mover of events on the peninsula. His rhetoric would catch on there too. And in a way that is remarkable, I find, for he was mostly railing against imperialism, while the colonial footprint was not nearly as deep in Arabia as elsewhere. Yet there was something very appealing about the idea of a political union of Arabs. Well, for common folks at least. The monarchs were less enthusiastic, for there would clearly not be a place for them in Nasser's superstate. The Egyptian leader did have great plans with Arabia, however, and with its oil. And this also worried America. For although Egypt proudly presented itself as a non-aligned country, its leader gradually became regarded as a crypto-socialist. His nationalization policy was just one example. The prospect of Arabia's oil reserves falling into the hands of this unpredictable firebrand caused sleepless nights in Washington, London and Rijat alike. That explains why America, a republic, would end up supporting Arabian monarchs against the tide of republicanism. And just like Iran and Saudi Arabia are now fighting it out in Yemen, that also was the arena for the upcoming showdown between Egypt and the Saudis. And for similar reasons too. Both Nasser and the Ayatollahs considered it a backdoor to Saudi Arabia. There was nothing of direct value for either of them in Yemen itself. It was a means to an end. 
South Yemen was susceptible to Nasser's anti-imperialism because it harbored the only part of Arabia under open and direct colonial possession, namely Aden. The British had formed a protective cocoon around it by forcing the surrounding sheikdoms into submission. But they had to use force, though, and that didn't contribute to their popularity. The reason why Aden needed this protective buffer was not only to ward off raids by unruly tribes, but more so because in the northern interior of Yemen there loomed a bigger threat, a Shiite imamate. It was at this monarchy that Nasser would first direct his arrows. Not only because it gave him access to his real target, Saudi Arabia, but also because he sensed that the Yemeni imam was particularly weak. The people of North Yemen didn't have an axe to grind with Europeans, so Nasser's usual pan-Arabian talking points might not work so well there. Instead, Nasser tried to tempt them, or the North Yemenis I mean, with a vision of modernization. He had reason to believe that this would work. After all, the imamate was one of the most backward places on earth. Most people still lived in huts of mud and suffered from hunger and endemic diseases. Local Republicans blamed this on the reactionary monarch, whose archaic and nepotistic rule obstructed progress. But what they perhaps failed to appreciate was how much this type of rule fitted the worldview of many of, Yemenis, of Yemen's inhabitants. And how could it be otherwise? In their highland villages, most of them had hardly any contact with or knowledge of the outside world. There was no tradition of centralized authority whatsoever. Rarely, if ever, had Yemeni rulers been more than sheikhs of sheikhs. If you heard the earlier episodes, I'm sure that sounds familiar. Nonetheless, there were many Yemenis who reacted enthusiastically to Nasser's braggadocio. Just like the Syrian leaders before him, the Imam suspected that many of his subjects wanted to join the United Arab Republic, and it was crystal clear that he was on top of the Egyptian hit list. For a time, he managed to ward off this threat with a shrewd maneuver. He offered to voluntarily join Nasser's union, but on his own conditions. In re reality, this would mean that hardly anything changed. It was almost a symbolic gesture, but it served its purpose, for it would look bad now if Nasser kept attacking the Imam, who seemingly acted so generously toward him. The turning, point, the turning point was when Syria blew up the Union with Egypt. When that happened, Nasser looked ridiculous, and the Imam couldn't resist the temptation to openly gloat about it. True to form, he did this by publishing a lengthy poem. This led the short-tempered Egyptian leader to blow up the Union with North Yemen himself. Perhaps the Imam had reckoned that the humiliated Nasser would not dare to be so aggressive anymore, but then he was gravely mistaken. Nasser stepped up his anti-Yemeni activities straight away. The following year, Yemeni army officers deposed the new Imam, who had only just acceded to the throne. Only narrowly could he escape from his besieged palace. The plotters declared the birth of a republic, but they immediately found themselves threatened on all sides. The Imam still had many tribal allies, and the Saudis would give him the means to buy the necessary support in his homeland. So the fragile Republican regime in North Yemen was in danger of being killed in the cradle. It turned to Egypt for support. Now at first, Nasser was surprisingly cautious, sending only a tiny number of troops. But they were placed under local command, 
and that would turn out to be a blunder, for it offered the Yemenis a perfect opportunity to suck the Egyptians deeper into their conflict. Also, they came badly prepared, lacking even basic maps of the terrain, which was treacherous such as it was. As soon as they were openly involved, it became impossible to disengage without losing face. And so soon after the humiliating loss of Syria, that would destroy what was left of Nasser's image. Consequently, he ended up sending tens of thousands of Egyptians to support the Yemeni Republicans. This sudden belligerence is rather puzzling, given that soft power had served him so well in the past. Probably he was still frustrated that Syria had got away so easily. But apart from personal pride, there was no political rationale for this war. Yemen had no value to Egypt, except for the hope that if one monarchy fell, others would follow. If Saudi Arabia would fall into Nasser's lap, his economic problems would be over. Alas for him, the Saudis believed in this domino theory too, so they protected the deposed imam and tried to get him reinstalled. It's a situation with faint echoes in today's Yemen, where the Saudis are once again supporting a leader deposed by revolutionaries, be it of a very different kind, namely radical Shiites. I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that Saudi Arabia would later become the great adversary of Shia Islam. Yet here, we find it helping a Shia Imam. This shows you just how unimportant sectarian differences were at the time. And why? Well, quite simply, the Iranian revolution hadn't happened yet. Iran was still a kingdom ruled by the Shah, who was a friend of the Saudis. Therefore, Rijat had no fear of a Shiite wave, but all the more of a Republican one. So the Saudis had no qualms about defending a Shiite monarch against Republicans. They saw the Egyptian presence on their southern border as a huge threat. Indeed, there were regular raids on their territory too. Their fear of contagious revolution was no mere fata morgana. The kingdom had no choice but to accept lots of guest workers to man their oil facilities at the time. And many of these migrants came from places where Nasserism was rife, like Yemen. They brought this ideology to Saudi Arabia, where it was reinforced by the slave-like conditions in which they had to work there. This in itself gave the crowned heads good reasons to get involved in the politics of places like Yemen. But guest workers were not the only inside threat. Even many Saudi citizens were enthusiastic about Nasser. He even managed to get a former king on his side. King Saud, who was accused of incompetence, was forced by his family to hand over his throne to his brother Faisal. But he never fully accepted this. Nasser seized on this family feud by effectively recruiting Saud to his cause. He became a very useful propaganda tool against his family members. The Egyptians helped promote Saud's return to power, probably to use him as their puppet. So the threat to Saudi Arabia was all too real, probably more so than the Houthi threat today. The Saudis were also smarter about it in the 60s. Unlike Nasser, they only used Yemeni proxies, and this had considerable advantages. The Egyptians clearly had a typical colonial attitude about them, portraying their presence as a civilizing mission. They wanted to impose a centralized state on a feudal society in the mold of their own lands. But while the Nile had always facilitated centralization in Egypt, the rugged terrain of Yemen made this nearly impossible. Yemen was, then as now, an unforgiving country to invade, 
let alone control and modernize. And the condescending attitude of the Egyptians bred discontent among the tribes, who were very independent-minded and proud. They were also untrustworthy allies. Often, they would ambush isolated troops, and especially the convoys that brought supplies to the isolated corners of Yemen. In a guerrilla war, it's typically hard to know friend from foe. But in Yemen, where alliances are always fickle, it's even worse. As will always happen in such cases, the Egyptians responded by wanton punishment of local villages, antagonizing potential allies. Of course, the Egyptians tried to buy the allegiance of the sheikhs, but these quickly came to understand that the more troubled their region was, the more money they got to appease the situation, so this tactic often backfired. Of course, this was also hugely expensive, just like the military operation in itself, and it's not as if Egypt had money to spare at the time. At first, Egypt still managed to make the best of its neutral position in the Cold War. It obtained food aid from the USA, which gave it a chance to obtain weapons from the USSR. It was very deep in debt with the latter, however, and therefore the Soviets, comically, were upset when the Americans finally came to the conclusion that their help wasn't achieving any results. President Johnson felt like he was in effect subsidizing a war against their Saudi ally, and not without reason, so he stopped the aid. This immediately caused financial troubles and put the relationship with Egypt's Soviet creditors under strain. After Nasser's ally Nikita Khrushchev lost power in the Politburo, the USSR became ever more demanding of Egypt. As often happens, a country that tries to play two sides off against one another ends up alienating both. Divide and rule is not always a winning tactic. All these diplomatic problems might have been avoided, however, had it not been for the war in Yemen. This was the major bone of contention with America, and it took away much-needed resources that Egypt could have used to stimulate its own economy, or do something about the millstone of Soviet debt around its neck. Tensions between Cairo and Moscow would also have grave consequences in that other Yemeni theater of war, South Yemen. Around the time when the Imam was deposed in the north, the British had forced Aden to merge with the surrounding tribes that had made up its buffer zone. Now this was a shotgun wedding really. The union was extremely unpopular with both parties from the start. The city dwellers of Aden looked down on what they regarded as backward troublemakers while the clansmen for their part had no love for what was in their eyes a decadent and alien city culture. This unhappy union was not the only reason why South Yemen was brimming with unrest. This was the place in Arabia that most clearly carried the British footprint, so Nasser's speeches were well received over there. Soon enough, the British faced assassination attempts. Not unlike the Egyptians in the north, they reacted brutally. In fact, you can go on YouTube right now and check out the adventures of an officer with the telling nickname Mad Mitch. Then you can see for yourself how British troops handled the Yemeni population and wonder how they felt about this. Small aside here, it's only after you've seen your countrymen in a very recent past brutalizing civilians that you can start to understand the anger that the memory of empire still invokes in much of the world. But just like Europeans are not intrinsically better than other people, neither are they worse. In the comment section of such YouTube films, you can read a lot of things like, look how Britain destroyed the world. 
But this is not a British thing, folks. It's an empire thing. Wherever you live, chances are that your ancestors were empire builders too. Even my own midget of a country, Belgium, had a huge colony in the Congo not that long ago. Wherever you live, it would be a mistake to think that your people are somehow morally superior, that they would never find themselves in such a position. In fact, the Egyptian experience in Yemen is a perfect illustration of this point. The Egyptians were Muslims, like the Yemenis, and they spoke Arabic, again, more or less like the locals. They themselves had first-hand experience of being colonized, and they did their best to win hearts and minds by building schools and hospitals and water wells. That was not a problem either. And yet, even they soon acted like occupiers all the same. If a soldier finds himself and his buddies under attack and doesn't know friend from foe, I suppose it becomes very hard to react wisely and cautiously. I can think of few counterexamples to this. None, to be honest. Is this then a lesson that history can teach us about human nature? Well, it might be possible to overcome such instinct someday, perhaps by a certain medication or other technological support, who knows? But we clear, clearly aren't anywhere near that point yet, I think. So for now, it might be wise to take this into account whenever we talk about uh, intervention. Right, back to our storyline. Both Nasser and the Soviets tried to make use of the emergency in Aden, giving support to opposition groups. Only, these ended up fighting each other, just as fiercely as they fought the British. Local rivalries were made worse by the growing rift between the Egyptians and the Soviets. Again, we might see in this some kind of foreboding of what would happen during the Arab Spring. Then, too, the opposition would unravel as soon as President Saleh was out of power in Yemen, among other things because of conflicting outside interests, like between the Saudis and the Emiratis. Just as Yemen today is a complex patchwork of big and small struggles, so too with the civil wars during the 60s. The conflicts on the, on the two sides of the border were closely interrelated. Nasser swore to stay in the north as long as the British held out in the south. On both sides, this evoked dreams of a united Yemen, an idea that Saleh would later build upon. The outcome of the wars, however, made the two sides of Yemen more distinct, not less, and this ensured that the Union, when it finally arrived, would be a very unhappy one. The wars in Yemen during the 60s are all but forgotten today, yet they played an important role in world politics. For one thing, the struggle against Egypt brought Saudi Arabia and Britain back together after a long period of enmity. And because of his continued struggle with such American allies, Nasser fell out of favor in Washington, D.C. As I said before, all this, together with the military costs, took a heavy toll on the economy. Finally, it became ever harder to conceal the fact that the war was going badly and that it was costing many Egyptian lives. While the people ran out of food and other essentials, it became ever harder to explain to them why precious money was being wasted on some thankless place far away. Nasser understood this, but it would be hard for him to get out of Yemen without losing face. Once you have invested so heavily in a project, abandoning it without results becomes difficult. This, I suppose, is why so many wars lost far beyond the point of reason. In this case, having already lost Syria, an admission of defeat in Yemen might destroy the credibility of the entire project of Arab nationalism, and the Egyptian regime itself might become endangered. 
Nasser, however, thought he'd found the perfect exit plan. The struggle against the Muslims of Saudi Arabia had to make way for a more important one, against the Jews. A conflict with Israel would be very popular and provide him with a perfectly acceptable excuse to come to terms with Rijat, and turning down such an offer would be a hard sell for the Saudis too, as Nasser well knew. Still, they could not agree on the fundamentals, in particular the fate of the Imam. For if he returned to the throne of Yemen, that would hammer home the point that the whole adventure had been futile, so a negotiated settlement was still out of reach. Then suddenly, the issue was resolved by a deus ex machina. Nasser had never anticipated that he would get himself into a full-scale war with Israel. That he did was largely due to miscalculations and misunderstandings. He also hoped in vain that the USSR would come to his aid, having provided him with the intelligence that led to his invasion of the Sinai. But Nasser had nothing coming, and his army was squashed. The name of the conflict, the Six-Day War, tells you just how quickly it was all over. With this humiliation, Nasser's glory days came to a final end. He had no other choice but to abandon the fight in Yemen immediately. The Six-Day War put an end to Egypt's grandiose ambitions. But this might not even have happened were it not for the pointless involvement in Yemen. Without it, the relationship with America and the USSR might not have collapsed either. Yemen was Nasser's Vietnam. It cost him his credibility. Had he not ventured there, ironically, Egypt would have been in a better position to achieve its goals of dominating the Arab world. Nasser would have been well advised, I think, to stick to a war of words. As often happens when a country is dominated by one person, Egypt had taken on the tempestuous nature of its leader. Even before Nasser's death, however, it began to shed itself of his characteristics. Humbled, it lost its appetite for revolution. With the Republican threat no longer spreading, the bone of contention between Egypt and Saudi Arabia also disappeared, and thus a compromise became possible. Egypt would leave Arabia, the Saudis abandoned the Imam. Both saw no reason to spend their money and energy on Yemen, so it was left to its own devices. Perhaps this gives us an idea of what a future deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia might look like. It has emerged recently that something like this might be on the cards. In that case, the precedent of what happened in the 70s might warn us to lower our expectations. For North Yemen remained turbulent for many years to come. In many places, the influence of the central authorities remained feeble to non-existent, while in the capital, coup followed upon coup. When in the late 70s, a young military man named Saleh became the new leader of the nation, that was symptomatic for the weakness of central authority. For he originated from the highlands, which traditionally dominated Yemeni politics, but his great appeal was precisely that his clan was so weak and therefore not considered a threat by the real strong players. It was the equivalent, I think, of a powerful region that's, uh, of more powerful regions that put a child on the throne so that they can rule from behind the scenes, not having to venture into the crosshairs themselves. The life expectancy of a president was indeed short, which partly explains why so few other candidates presented themselves. There was even a dark joke during the rounds that goes something like this. A Yemeni dictator has just been murdered. 
and he catches up with his predecessor in the afterlife. The two had agreed to join up for a picnic. So he says, Hey Ahmed, I thought we'd agreed that you'd bring the marmalade. No worries, Ibrahim. Saleh will bring the jelly, and he should be here any minute now. In other words, the Yemenis saw Saleh as a dead man walking. Little did they know, he would not only remain in office for more than 30 years, he would also gain an iron grip on the north, and even on the south of Yemen. On the very same day that the last Egyptian soldier left Yemen, the British handed over Aden to the rebels. This was the start of a second phase of the Arab Gold War, for a communist faction soon took control of the triumphant liberation movement. Not only did they change South Yemen into a socialist state, they also set out to export their Marxist revolution and to erase the supposedly imperialist border with northern Yemen. This fed into the already unstable situation over there, but the communist aggression was just as problematic for their eastern neighbor, Oman. Much like the Yemeni imamate, Oman was still positively medieval. The Sultan had not managed to make proper use of the oil income, which only just started to flow in. And like in Yemen, this pushed some people to revolt. Part of their anger was also directed at the British, who were still a very domineering presence in the country. When there emerged a leftist insurgency in the Dofar region, bordering Yemen, the communists there seized upon it as a chance to undermine the monarchy of Oman. It was clearly with British approval that in 1970 the Omani Sultan was sidelined by his son Qaboos. His poor handling of the insurgency was presented as the motivation for this palace coup. The changing of the guard turned out to be a blessing for Oman. Unlike his conservative father, Qaboos used the oil revenues for modernization. He immediately outlawed slavery, a long-standing British demand. But that was just the beginning. Oman stepped out of its self-chosen isolation and became an everyman's friend. It even managed to stay out of the Iranian-Saudi feud to this day. Finally, with the economic situation improving rapidly, the Dofar rebellion petered out. Few have questioned the dynasty since. After Qaboos died of natural causes at the end of a 50-year reign, the succession proceeded smoothly, even as the Sultan left no son. A monarchy is a throw of the dice, but sometimes you can get really lucky. Caboose was offered a good hand, but he played it like a pro. Instead of destroying the Omani monarchy, South Yemen had inadvertently made it stronger. Likewise, the threat from the South encouraged the warring factions in North Yemen to bury the hatchet. However hard the communists tried to undermine the countries around them, they didn't manage to bring down a single one. Ironically, their own regime would prove the most fragile and short-lived. Arguably, this was mostly due to overreach. Its grandiose ambitions were way too big for its resources. Historically, the only strategic asset of South Yemen had been the port of Aden, but its prosperity depended on the trade and investment that came with the British presence and on its position along trade routes. Now the British were gone, and while the Suez Canal was closed because of the crisis there, trade would be diverted around Africa. Afterwards, Aden, which had been the Dubai of the previous era, lost its position to the real Dubai. 
and, to a lesser extent, to the Sultan Qaboos harbour in Oman as well. Communist rule had been violent and repressive, and didn't exactly attract business. Since it lacked resources, South Yemen was very dependent on outside help, especially from the USSR, but after a while, the Soviets got annoyed with their aggressive vassal and lost interest. After the Iron Curtain came down, South Yemen's prospects became very bleak. The socialist dream would eventually collapse in a hail of bullets, leaving most of the leadership dead and the rest so weakened they had to seek a merger with their former enemy, North Yemen. That said, the communist reign had not been a complete failure in every regard. For one thing, they were certainly more progressive than the rest of the peninsula, and in some respects even more so than any other regime in Arabian history up to that point. They boasted of a number of achievements in essential areas like education, food supply and women's rights. Even the centralization of authority was relatively successful. No mean feat if you consider the situation before and after. And indeed, when compared to the North during the same period, these reforms, as well as the collectivization of property, weakened the tribal hierarchy in South Yemen, while it remained all-important in the North. There, even the Egyptians, so bent on centralization, eventually stopped interfering in the business of the sheikhs. This contrast explains in part why the union between North and South Yemen would prove such a mismatch, and such a disillusionment especially for the Southerners. Their long-cherished dream of unification came true, but it turned out to be a nightmare. Just goes to show, careful what you wish for, you just might get it, right? Except that the Southerners never would have dreamt that the tribal north would end up in the cockpit of a united Yemen. In a way, both the short unification of Yemen and its eventual failure were linked to the discovery of fossil fuels. With the income from oil, President Saleh could tighten his grip over the north, and the fact that it was found around the unstable border made it appealing for bo both North and South to put their differences aside. Yet this raised high hopes, and the reserves turned out to be unimpressive. Partly for this reason, Saleh didn't have the means to pacify the country like his neighbors did. The lives of ordinary people hardly changed for the better, especially in the South. Due to their disillusionment, the Union ultimately failed. There was also no outside power to help the state consolidate control, for by the time that oil was discovered, the British had long left. That wasn't the case further east, where large reserves were found decades earlier. That made quite a difference, for while the loss of Aden was unpleasant for fans of the empire, it wasn't considered as important as before. As I said, it had already lost its raison d'être as a colony, on the Gulf Coast, it would be a different story, however. The British wanted to leave their interests there in the hands of a stable, friendly regime. The Omani Sultan understood that it would be wise to cooperate with them. With the help of the British military, he managed to overcome the rebels. By being merciful and distributing the growing oil revenues, he pacified the troubled regions of Oman, including Dofar. The victory of the rebels and the subsequent communist takeover in Aden didn't go unnoticed in the Gulf region. It was well understood that the sloppy merger of Aden with its surroundings was at the root cause of the fiasco. 
there had not been much local support for it, and the British had been too hasty to get out. The sheikhs in the east were careful not to repeat these mistakes. They tried to convince the British to stay, but when these announced that they would leave the region regardless, this spurred the leaders of Abu Dhabi and Dubai into action. The two of them agreed to pull together and convince the other sheikhdoms in their neighborhood to form a federation. All had an interest in making this work. They only had to look to South Yemen to see what the alternative might look like. So Yemen's troubles in the Cold War era contributed to the stability further east. Although this was of course not the whole story, the oil wealth of the Gulf states also made them tempting targets. For instance, the Saudis had still not consented to Abu Dhabi's independence, and they remained a threatening presence. Divided and without British protection, the little statelets of the Gulf would have scant hope of keeping such powerful aggressors at bay. But the oil wealth of Abu Dhabi, which far outdid the others, also made it possible for its sheikh to make generous moves towards his less fortunate peers. You might say that he was a visionary for being so generous. He could well lose everything if the political differences were not resolved before the British packed their bags. In this case, maybe necessity was the father of success. For in 1971, the United Arab Emirates was born, and it still mostly lives up to its name. And that concludes the complicated story of the Arab Cold War. I hope you enjoyed it, and also that it wasn't too hard to follow. The next episode will be more easily digestible, promised. Until then, bye!